In the early 1960s, Mal Sharp and Jim Coyle made a name for themselves on the San Francisco Bay Area radio waves, asking random people surreal questions. One particularly wonderful show was about edges. How do you feel in general about edges, they asked. To which Dennis, the unsuspecting passerby, replies, What type of edges? I don't know exactly what you mean. As it turns out at the end of the interview, Dennis does know, or at least he ends up being pretty good at dodging a stream of puzzling propositions designed to completely derail his logic. Clouds, thorns, lamps, carpentry tools, or Denver in relation to edges. Oftentimes, we don't look at edges, Coyle and Sharp clarify. We'll tend to look at the center of something where we regard its substance. China Mieville's The City and the City is a weird tale of murder mystery and political intrigue in a bizarre setting. Two superimposed cities, Bezel and Ulkoma, occupying the same space simultaneously. The two cities are composed of what are known as cross-hatched or shared areas, as well as alter and total areas, context-specific terms referring to places that are entirely in one of the two cities, which of course depends on the observer. You are allowed to inhabit total areas, that is, areas in your city, but not alter ones, which you are expected to ignore and avoid at all costs. This implies constantly making an effort to unsee things, people, cars, dogs, everyday objects, and events taking place in the other city. Failure to unsee those things is considered breach, the highest form of crime. The book is, at its core, a story about limits, a convoluted superposition of legal, political, and physical boundaries, and the way the characters are forced to maneuver around and even across them. We're going to talk about limits, and we wanted to kick things off with a reference to Mieville's story because of the role limits and edges play in the book, but also because the term breach has many implications that we can expand on here. Breach has legal connotations, as in breach of contract, but it's also common in geology, especially hydrogeology. And we're going to talk about all sorts of breaches and cracks, both literal and metaphorical. This is the sound of a piece of rock salt being crushed. I took the rock, technically I stole it, but please don't snitch, from one of the tunnels of the now-abandoned salt mine in Cardona. The mining complex is now known as Salt Mountain Cultural Park, named after the impressive white mountain that sits on top of the more than 300 kilometers of tunnels, which, until 1990, constituted one of the world's largest potassium chloride mines. Being inside the galleries is pretty wild. You get to admire the immensely beautiful, alien-looking salt formations all around you, but it's hard not to have mixed feelings about the whole experience. Mines tend to carry that kind of baggage. In this case, 
a mixture of extreme wealth, human tragedy, and in the words of Napalm Death, absolute imbalance on the scales of survival, soon to tip in favor of extinction. The salt mountain in Cardona was formed two million years ago when low-density salt was pushed up through the much harder materials surrounding it. Apparently, the salt was mined since the Neolithic age. If you've seen Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, you've probably seen the Cardona Castle, which perches on the hill at the other end of town. The castle would never have been built without the ridiculous wealth that the salt deposit brought to Cardona. It may not be made of salt, but it was surely funded by it. During the Middle Ages, the family of counts and dukes that ruled Cardona was so incredibly powerful they were commonly known as the kings without a crown. Back then, having unlimited access to that much salt meant authority, control, and a huge amount of power. And we all know that the Peter Parker principle usually leads to disaster when great power entails tons of money. It's not totally clear what the etymological connection is, but the word salary, from the Latin salarium, appears to be linked to salt. One theory is that the salaries of Roman soldiers were essentially an allowance for the purchase of salt. Making food taste less bland has always been a top priority and really good business. In Cardona, this business went on until the early 20th century, when the Peter Parker principle really took a dark turn. In late 1912, Emilie Viare found potassium chloride underneath the iconic salt mountain, and the discovery completely changed the scope and focus of the mining operation there. Salt was no longer the goal. You can get cheap salt from seawater, but potassium chloride is a different story. Also known as Bertholet's salt, potassium chlorate was discovered in 1787 by the French chemist Claude Louis Bertholet, who immediately tried to use it in the production of gunpowder. I guess the poetic irony is obvious enough, but in case you missed it, before we learned how to synthesize it, all around the world, and certainly in Cardona, explosives were being used to dig deeper into the ground in order to extract more stuff to make, yes, explosives. But not only explosives, the other major application of potassium chlorate at the time was in the development of industrial fertilizers. Oddly enough, that was by no means the only link between fertilizers and warfare back then. Also in the early 20th century, two German chemists, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, found a way to turn the nitrogen in the air into fertilizer using an artificial nitrogen fixation procedure which became known as the Haber-Bosch process, earning them Nobel Prizes along the way. As it happens, Haber also worked extensively on the weaponization of chlorine and other gases for the German army during World War I. So there it is again, a chemical bond between crops and bombs. While these two items, fertilizers to feed people and weapons to kill people, 
may easily be considered polar opposites. They can also be understood as different parts of the same complex process, namely our collective drive for growth and expansion. There are a few ways to quantify this drive. For example, you could look at the charts for global population growth over the last century, or sea level rise measurements. But both our guests will talk extensively about population and water in a few minutes. So first, let's take a look at two particular objects, two exhibits among the millions of possible examples of human stupidity around us. Exhibit one, the Burj Khalifa skyscraper in Dubai. As of this writing, the tallest man-made structure on the planet, an oasis of extreme luxury and extreme absurdity, built in the middle of the desert, in the most inhospitable terrain and conditions. The building contains about 100 kilometers of pipes that supply an average of 946,000 liters of water every day. And yet, in 2011, a number of viral videos showing long lines of tanker trucks leaving the building every day showed the world a pretty astonishing fact about the logistics of the Burj Khalifa. While the building does have a sewer system, the city's sewer cannot handle the extra load from the skyscraper, so the waste has to be carried out in what have been dubbed poop trucks. Exhibit 2. The proposed unofficial flag for Mars, designed by Pascal Lee in 1998. The flag consists of three vertical stripes, red, green, and blue. The sequence of colors from left to right symbolizes the process of terraforming Mars, its iconic redness changing to green, representing vegetation, and finally blue, representing Earth. It's just a metaphor at this point, but it's sad that we may be planning to change the face of the planet so drastically, even long before we set foot on it. Perhaps we shouldn't be allowed to design flags for other planets, after all. Sad to say, these two exhibits are not isolated instances of this expansive, extractive trend, which we inherited from thinkers like Hegel, who trusted that the history of mankind would be an ever-rising upward spiral of so-called progress, eventually reaching what he called the Great Idea. Not sure what the idea was, but the upward spiral as a topological object for economical, territorial, demographic expansion turned out to be a pretty horrible one. Which brings us back to potassium chlorate and its industrial byproducts. While they probably did not get to adorn any nation's flags at any point during the early 20th century, explosives and fertilizers are definitely among the products that best symbolize the wave of proliferation that most of those nations, following Hegel and others like him, have traditionally called progress, but which is now clearly correlated with overpopulation, climate disruption patterns, and our global ecological crisis. Push it to the limit. Walk along the razor's edge, but don't look down. Just keep your head or you'll be finished. 
Open up the limit. Past the point of no return. Reach the top, but you still gotta learn how to keep it. These are the first two verses from Scarface, Push It to the Limit, one of the most emblematic songs on the soundtrack for the 1983 cult classic Scarface. The movie, a gangster tale about a different kind of upward spiral that also revolved around expansion and extreme growth, uses the expression, the world is yours, several times, so that it becomes a recurring motif. Tony, the main character, first sees the slogan on a blimp as part of a Pan Am advertisement, takes it as a fortune cookie moment, and makes it his motto. Scarface has often been described as a parable of the American dream, but it can easily be extended to a parable of mankind's relentless growth patterns and the ever-brightening promise of greater prosperity and wealth with no limits. And Tony Montana's The World is Yours fits that maximalist narrative even better, as it applies not only to Tony and his ambitions, but to mankind as a whole. We've all been behaving as if the world was ours in the worst possible way, pushing it to the limit. No valley too deep, no mountain too high. In previous episodes, we have hinted at limits as an interesting feature of objects that are often fuzzy or vague, and therefore hard to outline. This time around, we take a radically different approach to limits, a much darker, urgent take on boundaries and edges, if you will. This is not so much about ontological boundaries, but rather about the dangers of looking at the world with no limits in mind. American artist and activist Chris Corda talks, and sometimes yells, about extinction in relation to population growth. Our conversation turns to procreation, exponential curves, post-anti-humanism, and how all of these things are closely entangled in our species-wide obsession with the absence of limits. We also talk about the changing tactics of Corda's Church of Euthanasia a nonprofit educational foundation devoted to restoring balance between humans and the remaining species on Earth, from the sarcasm and shock tactics of the early days to the current version of the organization, much more concerned with getting the message across as loud as possible. But that comes later. We kick things off with Costa Rican anthropologist Andrea Ballestero, who tells us about her experiences her fieldwork, and her conceptualizations in the analysis of the underground world. She focuses on aquifers as incredibly complex objects and on our relation to their physical edges. As she puts it, aquifers interrupt many of our sense-making habits as they require that we recalibrate our analytic and political vocabularies to oscillating figures and grounds to unusual volumes and their dynamics. We talked to her about water and movement, volumetric thinking and saturated spaces, but also about caves and mines as the objects that geology and the mining industry have primarily used to shape our preconceptions of the subsurface. 
and we consider the ideological baggage that comes with those assumptions. Andrea's work problematizes the commonly accepted view of the underground world as a fixed, static medium. She talks about that, and also about the commodification of water, a substance that pushes all sorts of boundaries at the conceptual, pragmatic, embodied, and effective levels. I think I'd like to start before we jump into the aquifer question with um, this reflection that Rock made about how my work engages things that seem to be known, but in reality maybe are not so known. We have a lot of preconceptions of what they are, but then when we just slow down for a moment and think a little bit more carefully about what those things might be, then we realize they are rich and textured and surprising in ways. And this goes all the way in my work. I've, I've, that has motivated my, my research, starting from things as mathematical formulas or you know, lists of types of water that are used in legal reform all the way to the work on aquifers. And that commitment to things that we sort of seem to know rather than things that are on their face fantastic and foreign and, and different and unknown is one that is political for me as well in the sense of how is it that political engagement and the idea that as humans and in, in companion and in collaboration with non-humans, we sculpt the social worlds and the material worlds that we're part of. That idea of, of sculpting things together, for me, is one that grows out of things that are here, apparently, at our hand, apparently, that we know how to use, apparently unremarkable, like a chisel or a, you know, other kinds of instruments that, that we seem to think that we know well, and then we slow down and we realize that there's so much more that can be brought out of them. And that is how I got to aquifers uh, in my collaborations with the scientists and public officials that I have worked with in Costa Rica and also in Northeast Brazil. And I was also one of those people that thought, oh, aquifers, I kind of know what they are, but I don't need to think too much about them because what matters is the quantity of water that's available above the surface. However, the more time I spent with these people in Costa Rica, the more field trips that we did, the more um, questions that we struggled with together, the more fascinated I became with aquifers as figures of thought and as figures of, of material configuration. And maybe I should say I'm by training an anthropologist and uh, the way in which we do research might be a little bit different from the way in which other disciplines uh, engage that process. The bulk of our research is participant observation, which is this commitment to trying to understand and trying to experience the world as our interlocutors or collaborators do. So in this particular case that I'm talking about, I was working with hydrogeologists in a public agency in Costa Rica. So rather than going to them and saying, this is what I think it's going on here as an anthropologist, one tries to stretch oneself to sort of push the boundaries of one's own thinking, to try to make sense about, of how these interlocutors that you're working with make sense of the world. So as I was doing the fieldwork, I 
just began hearing from them more and more about this totally different conception of subterranean space and of aquifers. They really were pushing me and also um, the communities with which they interact to sort of get away of this reduction of aquifers into a water quantity number, getting away from that conception and instead something they said over and over and over to think with movement. And when I tell this story and when I speak about this, I, I often like to invite people to just pause for a moment. If you're on a first floor uh, or if you're on the street or if you're on a park or, you know, on the bus uh, traveling from one place to another, to just think for a moment about your feet or... If you're on a wheelchair, the wheels of your wheelchair, or if you have a cane, your cane, and, and think of that moment in which you, your, your body, or the extensions of your body connect to the floor, and try to imagine everything that's happening underneath. Just bring your attention there. And now that you've done that, rather than reproducing a fixed understanding of subterranean space, which is something that we have inherited from certain thought traditions. You know, subterranean space is layers of rocks that change at such a slow scale that they are imperceptible to humans. That's what we have heard many times. So maybe bracket that thought and think about pores, think about little bits of empty space, Think about sand, think about air, and of course, water moving through that formation. It could be a lot, as it is in certain parts of Costa Rica, a lot of water, or it could be very little, as it is in lots of parts of Spain, for example. And so this shift from fixity and presuming that we know what subterranean space is, that it's always layers of rocks that are fixed for our time scale and for the speed of our own perception, going from there to asking questions about movement and making movement your starting point rather than fixity. So that was the first transformation that I experienced as I was doing this work with my interlocutors in Costa Rica. And this was an experience that was embodied and also very imaginative and very evocative, but it was also a very tactical experience. It was also learning how to read this mathematical modeling of water moving under the surface or mathematical modeling that attempted to conceive of what the shape or the form of an aquifer could be in a particular location. As I started doing more research, I began tracing a little bit of the history of where is this notion of a fixed underground coming from. And it's important to note here that when we speak about the general public, when we speak about uh, what scientists have taught us, uh, we're thinking about one group of people or a couple of groups of people that inhabit this planet. And so I just want to remind us that there are many groups of people in, in the world that don't think of the underground in this way all over the planet. So just a reminder that this is one situated understanding of space, of underground space. 
I began to realize how both in academic research but also in political discussions organized around the state, there had been a dominance of two figures that had captured both the technical, the legal, and the economic figuring of underground space. And those figures are the cave and the mine. And the mine has had this charged history of violence and dispossession that for a while was pushed to the margins in the sense only in the places where there's mining conversations about these issues were happening. But nowadays, it has become a much generalized conversation. And the mine here represents both the extraction of minerals, but also the extraction of petrochemicals from the underground. And so in the context of climate change, what the mine did to our imagination of the underground has been globalized, to use that word. And it's installing itself as a presumption. What I mean by this is it's the taken-for-granted idea that people have when they imagine undergrounds and their relation to capitalism and their relation to nation states and their relation to companies, uh, etc. And for me, it was important to, or it is important to trouble that. I think those ideas that we take for granted as the normative ideas of what is, even if we want to criticize them, if that is your foundation, if that is the taken for granted world that you're starting from, certain possibilities are foregrounded and others are closed off. And so, For the project that I'm working on now, the question is, what needs to change in our imagination if we presume that it's not the mine, but it's the aquifer that is the figure that we should take for granted in a certain sense? It's not like there's aquifers in every underground space around the world, but the same is true of mines. There are not mines everywhere, and yet for clear historical economic reasons, the mine became uh, the normative figure. A companion figure to the mine has been the cave. And there, the, the affective charge is very different. So caves are often presented as spaces of darkness, of mystery, of danger. They're often, as with most things, represented through a masculinist history. So it's men who were explorers who went into these spaces and mapped them and offered them to surveyors that were defining the boundaries of nation states or surveyors that were defining the boundaries that they were taken from indigenous communities. And the cave these days has also an interesting charge in addition to this exploration of space where you're not supposed to be stream. Also, the question of origins for humans has become associated with caves where we find prehistories in, in recorded in different forms, in the forms of paintings in caves or in the forms of material remains that are used to, to date what we are as a species. And so that was also a very specific and unique figure in the sense that, just like with the mine, the cave also offers this sense that with the right technology, with the right resources, humans can inhabit those spaces. So if you dig enough space in an underground mine, 
you can put people, workers, in there to extract things. If you have enough knowledge, you can explore a cave and move through it, uh, even under ocean caves, etc. The aquifer precludes that. You can never inhabit an aquifer. And I really find that an important trait and a, and a fascinating material challenge for our own thinking, like spaces that are not at our disposal. Humans should not be everywhere. And aquifers remind us of that. If a human is in an aquifer, then it's not an aquifer anymore. It's something else. So for all of these reasons, I've become really, really fascinated to think about these material formations. And I haven't, of course, spoken about what is more familiar to us in terms of the need for water for survival and the, the unjust distribution of water and the exclusion of many people from something as fundamental as, as basic as a service of clean water for your, for your basic needs and for more than your basic needs, right? Water to flourish in the planet. Well-drilling companies have thought about aquifers for a long time. Certain governments have thought about aquifers for a long time. Certain military intelligence bodies have thought about aquifers for a while. But the rest of us, not so much. Farmers, evidently, have thought about aquifers for a while. But one, one could ask, were they thinking about aquifers or were they thinking about quantities of water that they need for their farming? And so... I just was completely seduced by this uh, and wanted to think more about it and wanted to replicate in my work something that is happening in Costa Rica, but it's happening in many places around the world, which is this re-emergence of aquifers as geopolitical preoccupations, uh, given our global environmental conditions. So now it's not only a matter of the how good they are to think with, but it's also a matter of the geopolitics of our future as all of these forces make explicit their concern and their desire to know where aquifers are and control them and channel them for certain uses and not, not other. One way to think about perception and one way to think about how we sense the world is through this relation between figure and ground. So, for instance, if maybe you are in a room where there is a, a wall in front of you and there's a painting, you could think of the painting as the figure and you can think of the wall as the ground. But you can also think, like, adjust the chemical flows in your brain, and you can adjust and think of the wall as the figure and the painting as the ground. So you see there's this moving back and forth uh, between what captures your attention and the things that you sort of push to the background so that you can pay more attention to this thing that you're centering on. And it's a really amazing exercise when you do this. You can pick any picture that you have taken, you know, f of your family, of a landscape that you visited, a city, and, and pick different figures and different grounds, and you start to see, you, you start to experience in an embodied way what this movement can be. And so when thinking about aquifers, we are used to one 
particular figure, which is, and here in the sense of figure and ground, this drawing or this graphic representation of the aquifer that paints it as a tank, basically, a tank that is under the surface, that has clear limits, that has clear boundaries, and then there's all of the other underground space around it, and you just push that to the background to not pay that much attention to it. And this is how many of us have been taught to think about aquifers. What if I told you that one of the amazing things about aquifers, and I should say a particular kind of aquifer that is in a rocky, for, a particular kind of rocky formation, because there are some aquifers that are water deposited in cracks. That is a, a, a material fact. But there are many others that are not, that are saturated space. So the exercise that I want to propose is imagine now that image that we've seen of a tank and pick up in your mind an eraser and try to erase all of the boundaries around that tank. And now see with your, with your mind's eye, I guess, how this water is not contained. It begins to expand, right? And now you can also imagine that, there, that this is not flat space, that this is a hilly space where there's like elevation differences, and that there also is something that is happening above the surface. So there might be rain, let's say. And then, in addition to that, above the surface, there might be this uh, oil company that is doing fracking that has a well out of which it is extracting water to use in their oil extraction, right? Now, imagine the rain falling, pushing water into the subsurface. Think about the elevation difference. This rain is falling up in the mountains, and there's a lower part uh, next to it, gravity and the structure of the rocks, if they allow it, will make this water move, right? And one really interesting thing is that there, if we're thinking about it as a saturated substrate, it's very difficult to know what is figure and what is ground. So an aquifer is more than water, is another way to say this, right? An aquifer is water, is stone, is rock, is sand, is soil, is empty spaces, is all of these things in a sort of choreography that is organized by gravity, but also by what this rain, the quantity of rain that is falling, but also by human activities, this company extracting water. And the other thing I should say is that it is very, very difficult to scientifically and technically delineate the shape or the form of an aquifer. And it's very difficult in part because you would need to drill a lot of wells to try to understand where the boundaries of the aquifer is so that you can model its form. And that is very, very, very expensive. And usually there's not that kind of investment. Um, and so trying to approximate a form is, on the one hand, not very accurate necessarily. But on the other hand, 
it might rob us from understanding what is most important about aquifers, which is not their form. It's this dynamic configuration, this kind of movement. I started this whole project because I was trying to make sense of this exact question when I was sitting in the office of one of the scientists that I work with. I was just trying to make sense, okay, how do you think about this movement? How do you make this movement the organizing principle rather than an adjective that you put there and you don't think so much about? We have some help, I should say. You know, many of us have been taught about the hydrological cycle, and that's already a place that privileges movement, except that what happened is that when we thought about the underground part, which sort of bracketed that and didn't think about its connection to this dynamic. So that's one way I would think about this, doing this exercise on figure of figure and ground and recognizing how when you turn water into a figure, you are erasing half of what an aquifer is. An aquifer is not only water, it's more than water. So when you bring that into the picture and then you think with time, so rather than a, a picture, think movie would be another way to make sense of it. So when you're watching the movie, then you, you cannot escape the movement. And that movement happens at very different timescales. There's something that we know that is called fossil water, which are aquifers that have no, not moved for a really, really long period of time, in some particular cases, millions of years. And there's other areas where this movement is relatively quick in the sense that it can happen in a couple of months. So this takes us back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this presumption that anything that happens under the surface, it's at a time scale that is unrecognizable for humans, not necessarily. I first heard about the notion of a water vein in a very politically fraught situation, in the sense that these scientists were, uh, that I collaborate with and I really admire and learn a lot from were convinced that they needed to teach people to leave behind this misconception. And of course we know that this, this pedagogical project has been associated to colonialism, epistemic colonialism, uh, not only historical, uh, the historical process of colonialism, but, but the, the erasure of certain ways of understanding the world, as you, as you just mentioned. And so we were talking about um, this fascinating issue of movement, and one of them was saying, well, yeah, the problem that we have is that we have to teach people to not think about underground water veins. And he gave the most amazing explanation for this. And I asked him, so, so why? And he said that the origin of this image 
comes from colonial times in Latin America. Like when people from Europe uh, arrived and launched the conquest process, uh, one of the two, they were bringing two things. On the one hand, this, um, the mining imaginary, of course, searching for riches, right? And with, with the vine, mining imaginary comes the notion of veins, of venas or, or vetas, uh, of gold or, or coal. or So that was language already existing in a particular connection to the underground. And this is what these scientists is, is, is how they are uh, retelling the story. In addition to that, another thing that was brought was this Western imaginary of the body and the notion of a vein that uh, you know moves through your body, but also the notion of the human body as uh, a reflection of the great chain of being, of the theological order that has been established by God in, in Christianity, right? And so the notion of a water vein combines on the one hand this understanding of the body and this understanding of the sanctity of the body as a Judeo-Christian project, particularly in the case of Latin America, uh, associated to Catholicism and Christianity, and then on the other hand, mining. And he said, our project is to decolonize uh, this form of understanding and educate people so that they understand that that is an incorrect, scientifically incorrect way of thinking about aquifers for the case of Costa Rica and for the geological formations in Costa Rica. And that was a really interesting moment for me, just in the sense of, of what is it that we do when we encounter these really interesting ways of thinking that are at once imagined as politically progressive projects and necessary environmentally, and at the same time still carry legacies of this form of epistemic homogenizing. Um, so I, I, I love to think with this colleague, this scientist, and this conversation because it it precludes us from romanticizing or idea idealizing what is entailed in the process of building better relations with the environment when scientific knowledge is at stake. I am fascinated with the notion of movement and I think it is generative to move some of us out of this conventional extractivist relating to the underground. Uh, and, and that means moving away from the idea of water veins. And at the same time, I recognize that the idea of a water vein has a context and a history among many groups around the world, many of them in Spain, because they, the, the, that language comes from Spain. And so how to think about that uh, how, to, how to keep the world open so that that is viable, but it doesn't necessarily reproduce extractivist relations uh, with the landscape. The other figure that is very, um, it's more fantastic, but it's this idea of underground rivers. The notion that there's these huge rivers moving underground, which has been, you know, there's some parts of the world, like in, in southern Mexico, where you have the cenotes that are just striking reservoirs of water underground that you can access and that actually are more like caves filled with water. But that it only exists in very few places around the world. And still, people think about 
the possibility of underground rivers, almost like this dream of exuberance where we could find all these these huge quantities of water. So those two figures or those two imaginaries in a certain way replicate this notion of, of the contained tank or the contained channel, which is the notion of pipes. It's the same material engineering principle that pipes replicate uh, as well. Um, so this richness of material formations exist, this richness of material imaginaries exists. And so what is interesting about this moment in history is that this notion of the aquiferous movement uh, and the aquiferous understood by hydrogeologists, which is a group that I work with, is the one that is acquiring more presence and coming to sit side by side with the pipe, the underground river, or the water vein, and trouble those. And it's an open question what will happen next, right? But I think it's important politically, economically, and important for our capacity to reimagine how we relate to the worlds that we live in, to have on the table ideas that trouble what is taken for granted. In this case, the vein, the pipe, and the river. So movement really gets in the way. Like if you think, if you start to think about movement and if you remain committed to exploding figure and ground, it's hard to keep the pipe in place uh, conceptually. Now, for me, it's really important to not romanticize either. We need pipes for, for certain things. And it, it would be good if there were more pipes going to the homes of certain people that are excluded from having access to these infrastructures. So pipes are good when deployed in that way. Maybe it's just not presuming that the pipe is, I'm sorry, you know what? Across my mind, this is not a pipe. <laughs> so I, I got a, a mental short circuit. Uh, but um, it's good to have pipes, but it's not good for the pipe to be what takes over our imagination of what is possible when we think about water in the subsurface. Let me say it this way. Aquifers in general are good entities. Plumes are not, uh, right? Uh, if we think about the initial affective charge of these formations. And this aligns with some of my other work. I thought it was really important for us to get closer to our monsters. And you have done a couple of, of conversations where you talked about monsters and those kinds of things. And and plumes are a little bit of that. Uh, they are monsters of our times. And at the same time, they're these incredible figures that require us to attune ourselves to morphological transformation to change in form and to a notion that I have found really interesting in thinking about in terms of fluid mechanics, really, because this is what I'm doing, the notion of dissolution. Dissolution as a, as a stage or a moment of a certain material uh, combination, 
So the moment in which, say, you put sugar in a glass and then you mix a glass of water and then you turn it with a spoon enough so that the sugar dissolves, right? This has a material dimension in the case of pollution plumes, whether they dissolve or not, whether a plume retains its form as it moves with groundwater because of the density of the pollutants that are there in that particular plume. But also, if we think about the dissolution of historical events, the ways in which a political intervention that we imagine as an event can dissolve and change the substrate or the water in which it originally appeared to completely change qualitatively what that situation is. And so I am, this research has entailed learning, a lot of learning of technical concepts and technical issues, and then taking those to see not only how they impact bodies and people, like how does benzene in water pollutes bodies and causes cancer. So there's that dimension. But also how you can turn some of these concepts around to help explain or help orient or help inspire action. And I think the plume does that for me in a very interesting way. It's one of those things that that has a bad character, the pollution plume, evidently. And yet, what we can learn from it, technically, like I said, can have huge consequences, for instance, for how responsibility is allocated for this environmental harm, right? So if we think about the spill, this grows out of uh, an accident that happened in, in San Jose, Costa Rica, the capital of the country, where between the rainy season and the summer season, uh, they discovered that um, this well that is used by the utility that provides water for basically all of the metropolitan area of Costa Rica had been polluted with gasoline, and they had no idea where the gasoline was coming from. As it turns out, there was a gas station nearby that could not account for about 30,000 liters of gasoline. So they had received this gasoline, uh, but had not sold it to customers. It had disappeared. Then they realized there had been a spill, and it was uh, in the aquifer. And so it was a huge piece of news. It was a huge environmental problem, particularly because of the location. About 50% of the population of Costa Rica lives in this metropolitan area, and this is the, one of the two or three main aquifers that is used to provide water for, for that region. The legal process in courts, but also the way in which the utilities, which are state-owned in Costa Rica, had to deal with, in combination with the municipalities, all, all of that process was in discussions and, and, and in organizing projects on how to deal with this problem. One of the most uh, daunting tasks was to figure out this pollution plume, like how much of the aquifer was polluted, how much had it moved. And so it is from that very concrete context of environmental harm that 
the plume emerges as a technical riddle, if you will, as something to try to understand better so that when responsibility is allocated for who needs to respond for this damage, we don't think of, oh, just, you know, 30,000 liters of gasoline we couldn't account for. We make people responsible for the extent of the pollution, the work that was necessary to take this water out and um, filter it again, and the permanent damage for those things, that quantity of, of chemicals that could not be removed. And so thinking about the technicality of the plume as a scientific figure brings a more textured dimension, if you will, to the allocation of responsibility. Because the extent, the effort, the necessary science to know how what its shape was, how the aquifer was moving, where was it going? Was it going to pollute another aquifer? Or was it contained by some formation? All of that comes to play in in this question of remediation and responsibility. So there's this material, uh, very practical dimension of it. And then in a more conceptual or, or imaginative way, building on this notion of movement and trying to make sense of the shape of movement and the ways in which water in aquifers in many parts of the world is at risk of constantly having these kinds of plumes uh, inside. That's what sort of motivated me to think more carefully about this this little little or big monster that lives with us in, in industrial uh, spaces and bring to our awareness of the kinds of material formations that we're talking about when we think about aquifers and how vulnerable they are to pollution. Side note, I wanted to dig a couple tunnels between Andrea's reimagining of the underground world and Chris's call to action. The first tunnel is a quote, and I like it because it's a fictional one, but it makes total sense because it takes a sharp spin on the notion of progress that both Chris and Andrea address in, in rather critical terms. It's from the collected sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Erlan, and it says, quote, The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. The second tunnel has to do with the music for this episode, which was made by Jessica Ecomane who really did a great job at making sense of the topics we've been discussing here. Later, 
you'll hear a sort of uh, droney version of the NATO anthem and also a signification of a session of Conway's Game of Life which obviously deals with limits and population growth and computation and so on. This track you hear in the background just now she made using a MIDI sequencer written by Chris Corda called Polymeter. And we could talk more about this piece of software because it's based on work that Chris started developing back in the 90s so it has a rich history behind it but that kind of collides with the real agenda here because Chris is way more interested in pointing at the elephant in the room called Apologize to the Future which is not only the title of an album but quote the latest phase in the Church of Euthanasia's 25-year attempt to bring the real possibility of human extinction into the public consciousness, unquote. So to butcher Princess Ireland's saying now, here's Chris Corda talking about the future and trying to actually raise the shields and protective mechanisms, maybe in the hope that the terrors of the future can get the ball rolling. So A Thin Layer of Oily Rock is the opening track of the album Apologize to the Future. Uh, and it sets the stage for what follows. Almost the very first line of A Thin Layer of Oily Rock is footsteps on the moon. It's really out there. And that is a reference to a famous, possibly apocryphal, but probably real quote from Albert Einstein, who it was sort of in the category of an infamous quip. He said, probably in German, the moon is really out there. It's a very ambiguous statement. But what he meant is that the moon is out there physically, whether you believe in it or not. And so in philosophy, we would say that this is a statement of not only of realism, but and of course of empiricism to some extent too, but more importantly, this is a statement of scientific pragmatism. I am a scientific pragmatist. Uh, scientific pragmatism is an important category of the philosophy of science. I would argue possibly the most important category in the whole complex web of the philosophy of science, because essentially what scientific pragmatism says is that we need to spend less time arguing about whether reality is real and counting angels on the heads of pins, because we have urgent problems that need solving in reality. And so instead of counting the angels on the heads of pins, scientists should spend their time trying to solve the real problems that confront humanity for the simple reason that reality is big and complicated and potentially lethal and moving fast. And so there's a real possibility that if we don't make our explanations of phenomena more predictive in a hurry, that reality is gonna get the better of us and, and pretty soon we'll be gone. So um, if you read much paleontology, you'll know that the, uh, the worst extinction that's happened thus far on Earth is the, uh, the sometimes called the Permian-Triassic extinction boundary. It basically uh, exterminated nearly all life in the oceans and most life on land. Very few uh, life forms survived it. So for example, on land, there was really only one significant animal let's say, let's make something like a you know, large animal with four legs that actually survived it. And so we're all relatives of that animal. It's called a Lysosaurus, I believe, pretty strange looking thing. 
And uh, so that's how severe the filter was. In other words, basically life through went a kind of a kind of went through a kind of filter at that time. And uh, it was um, how to say. I mean, this is this was just within the range of natural variation on Earth. This is just you know within the range of what can happen when Earth is left to its own devices without a, an a, a allegedly intelligent species actively interfering with the climate of the planet. Right. So it's it suggests. That, um, as some famous scientist said recently, climate is a dangerous beast, and we're sticking a stick into it and poking it, right? And so it was dangerous enough already, but with humans poking it, it's capable of doing even more crazy stuff. And we, so we can reasonably expect that if we continue to accelerate the entropy of our environment, uh, that something like the, the Permian-Triastic extinction will eventually happen. And of course, it won't happen all at once. But the point is that uh, it can easily be a situation where it can start to happen and become irreversible. So many Earth processes are like this. They're so, the so-called tipping points, meaning they um, they develop essentially inertia of their own. And so it could easily be imagined that at some point in the future, humanity could feel super sad and sorry and say, OK, OK, we get it. We get it now. We're not going to emit any more fossil carbon. That was a terrible idea. We're going to you know, shape up and uh, drastically re reduce our population and reduce our consumption and start living within limits and all that good stuff that um, the Republicans uh, say we'll never, ever, ever do because Jesus doesn't want us to. But you know what? By then it'll be too late is the point. Uh, that It can easily be that, for example, if we significantly melt uh, the permafrost, that the amount of gases released by that, both carbon dioxide and methane, are so huge that at that point they dwarf the amount of gases that humanity can output. And so it increasingly it won't matter what humanity does. And so that's the lesson of the thin layer of oily rock is that all of the life that existed, and there was a lot of it at the time uh, that the Permian-Triassic extinction happened, was reduced to what looks like if you're uh, you know, a paleontologist and you go looking in the right geological specimens, you basically just see this kind of black line. It's not very wide. It's you know less than, considerably less than a meter, more like uh, you know a third of a meter or something. It's quite narrow. It's just this long line of compressed, greasy rock. And what that is, is the crushed up remains of everything that died. And that's what will remain of us if we fuck this up, is the point. That's, that's what all of humanity's hopes and, and dreams and knowledge and accomplishments and, and uh, aspirations all of that will be reduced with thin layer of oily rock if we can't manage to get through this bottleneck that we're currently passing through. If you study climate science and, and study what scientists have written, you'll quickly discover that Earth is capable of much more inhospitable conditions than we're currently experiencing. What we're currently experiencing amounts to something like an inconvenience. It's inconvenient when property owners in Miami find that their buildings are partially underwater. Katrina killed a bunch of people, but by comparison to what Earth is capable of, it's an inconvenience. If you melted all of the ice, and by the way, that has happened, in the history of Earth without any assistance from humans in the past. We've had an ice-free planet where there were giant reptiles where the Arctic Circle is now, right? So if you melt all the ice, basically every coastline on Earth is submerged. And so it was not an understatement where, uh, where when Peter Ward, a famous paleontologist who wrote Under a Green Sky, said that humanity shouldn't worry so much about escaping to exoplanets 
because we're going to be too busy moving our airports. This really set me back when I understood what he meant. The point is, what percentage would you guess of the airports that humanity has built for itself are at sea level? It's not actually an easy thing to look up. If you type that in in uh, Wikipedia, you don't necessarily get an answer. But you can form a, an approximation pretty quickly by looking at maps and figuring out where all the cities are. And so, of course, it begs the question, why are so many cities built at sea level? And the answer to that, of course, is that cities were built at sea level because at the time when most cities evolved, uh, boats were the only means of international transport. And so it was necessary to, for trade reasons and for supply reasons to build cities at sea level. And in fact, the only major cities that were inland uh, prior to the modern era were at the ends of, or along major rivers where it was possible to get boats upriver. So this is just a fact, is that uh, in fact, the entire infrastructure of humanity is assuming a fixed sea level. But that's not the case. That's not what's coming. In fact, we've, we've already essentially guaranteed that that won't be the case. The problem is that it evolves over a very long time period and we're continuing to accelerate the situation while it's evolving. And so this is the thing. What, what people I think don't really get unless they have a background in science is that uh, it's hard for humanity to comprehend geological timescales. Most humans only think about what happens during their own lifetime and generally even with only within a small subset of that. So people think perhaps, you know, five or 10 years into the future or they, you know, think about the past, but through rose colored glasses. And this of course is the basis of a very important and famous uh, effect that was discovered uh, about a decade ago by Daniel Pauly and Jeremy Jackson, uh, who were both famous uh, marine biologists. And so they discovered something that they call the shifting baseline effect, which is absolutely crucial to understanding what's happened to humanity. Uh, the shifting baseline effect basically says that human beings tend to assume that whatever level of biological diversity they witnessed during their childhood, during their formative years, is the same level of biological diversity that's always existed. And of course, the problem with that is it's an easy enough to assumption, assumption to make, but it's totally mistaken. It's absolutely wrong. And so this is how we can arrive at a situation where the nations of the world are having this big international discussion over fishing rights and who should be allocated, how much of the various fish. But the problem is that what you don't see because of shifting baselines is that they're arguing over the last few percent of the fish that used to exist in the ocean that more than 90% of all the biological diversity in the ocean was destroyed long ago. Nobody can see this because it's not directly visible. You have to actually look for the evidence of that. So if you do look, you'll be quite shocked by what you find. There was The first time I found it was in a book called Cod, uh, which is a nonfiction book about the history of cod fishing in Massachusetts. And so they, they explored the allegation, which was made at that time, that you could walk to shore on the backs of cod. Now, you know, cod are pretty big fish, but it's hard to picture anybody actually walking to shore. And so, you know, at the time I thought that was just hyperbole. But then uh, I did more research and later what I found is that it is absolutely true that at that time there was, the cod were so plentiful in Massachusetts Bay that you could fish using a basket. Didn't need any other equipment. You could just go out there with a boat and a basket and stick the basket in the water and bring in these enormous fish. And I later found even more bizarre evidence. I found, uh, so they described at that time that the water was boiling with fish. And I thought again that that was hyperbole. But later I found a photograph of the same phenomenon, uh, a very old photograph from the Gulf of Mexico showing the exact same phenomenon where the water was literally boiling because the fit, there was so much biological diversity in it. And so of course that's all long gone. That's from the past. Humanity's mostly fished out the ocean. And so what this shows is a larger societal problem. A larger societal problem is that humanity is not well evolved 
or not well shaped by the forces of evolution that have acted on us in our original environment to manage threats that evolve over very long time periods. We're primarily optimized to manage immediate threats. Essentially, humanity has to become aware that it's capable of failing, but it's deeper than that. Um, so there's a, an important book we should bring up called Earth in Human Hands. It was written by uh, an, a guy who worked for NASA his whole life as a planetary biologist, meaning he's studying the biology of worlds that we'll never see and we have, have never seen. It's an exoplanet biologist. It sounds sort of wacky. You think, how can you study planets that we, that we don't know anything about? But you can. There's a lot we can learn about the universe from careful study. And so he came to some conclusions, which are closely related to the Drake equations, which govern basically how likely it is that there are other Earth-like planets elsewhere in the universe, in the vastness of the universe, with similarly intelligent species of some kind on them. Well, according to the Drake equations, basically the answer is it's very likely that our scenario has played out countless times throughout the universe. And there's a famous paradox that explains why we don't um, have any direct evidence of that, why we haven't been visited um, by intelligent life from other worlds. It's called the Fermi paradox. And essentially, what it's a very glum paradox. What it basically says is that the fundamental problem is that by the time a species becomes as intelligent as we're um, in the process of becoming, or let's just say, let's let's not use the word intelligent, let's say powerful because intelligence is complicated. Uh, let's just say powerful as incapable of sending radio signals over vast distances and so on. That by, by the time a species has become that powerful, it's likely on the threshold of self-annihilation, meaning it's likely having an awesome party and destroying its entire resource base and destroying its ecosystems or whatever else allowed it to, to get that far. And so that's a paradox, it's a problem because it leads to the situation where uh, essentially, just at the moment where something becomes powerful enough to transmit radio signals and potentially travel uh, on an interstellar basis, it's just about to disappear. And so the odds of its little blaze of glory lining up with our little blaze of glory wind up being essentially zero, despite the fact that these blazes are, uh, have occurred all throughout the history of the universe. So it's uh, uh, the flip side of this paradox, however, is that the opposite is also possible. It's possible for a life form to get through the bottleneck and become a long-lived species. But the, the trick is that in order to do that, it's just baked into the definition that that, that life form will have to have prioritized its long-term survival above all else, which is the thing that we are currently absolutely incapable of doing. And so that's the real leap that humanity has yet to make. Humanity has yet to actually agree that the goal of paramount importance to everyone living today is our future survival. There's not widespread agreement about that, not even close. In fact, probably a, a, something like half of the world's population would say if you press them that that's not really an important goal because we're all going to heaven. If, if it weren't for humanity, there would be nothing to discuss about Earth. Earth wouldn't be special. If this were just planet of dolphins or planet of squirrels or whatever, there would be no story to tell. It is humanity's story that makes the history of Earth worth knowing and telling and, and discussing. And so to the extent that humans destroy themselves and become absent from Earth, then the story is really over here. It's possible, of course, that, uh, that the giant reptiles or whatever else it is that follows us could re-evolve back into something like us, but there's no guarantee of that. In fact, the odds you know, aren't particularly good. 
So uh, it's complicated anyway. It could take a long time. And in any case, it wouldn't concern us. It's, it's long beyond our time horizon. So the point is that at the moment, we face an existential crisis. We, meaning, to the extent that there is any meaning in existence, comes from us. We generate it. We are obliged to generate meaning for ourselves. And if that meaning turns out to be that um, we should allow certain individuals to become immensely wealthy and powerful and basically enslave all of the rest of us so that they can have uh, idyllic lives where they are, have their every want and desire uh, immediately fulfilled and essentially live like pharaohs in ancient Egypt, if that's the goal, if that's what we all agree it's our society should look like, then actually we don't need to change anything. We have the perfect systems of government in place for achieving that outcome. That's what neoliberalism does. Neoliberalism maximizes that outcome, the outcome of maximal inequality, where the, the vast majority of Earth's resources and benefits are accrued in the smallest possible number of hands. So if we want Jeff Bezos to rule the world, uh, and guys like him, then we have exactly the right systems and the whole thing is set up perfectly. And the only downside to this is, other than the fact that lots of people will be immiserated and die horrible, miserable deaths that could have been avoided, the only downside is that the experiment will be very short. It'll be a short, epic party for the few, and then the experiment will be over and humanity won't be around and it'll be giant reptiles or whatever comes next. Uh, by the way, I'm not exaggerating when I bring up giant reptiles. So the, the type of climate that humanity seems hell-bent on making on Earth generally does not favor mammals. So if you, you know, know your paleontology and your history of Earth, you know that very hot, very humid climates are actually prejudicial against mammals. Reptiles have a very different method of controlling their temperature than we do. They actually can't really thrive without a super hot, humid environment. And you, if you, you know, think about it, you'll understand that, right? So you ever see a, a, a snake or a lizard sunning itself on a rock, that's not for no reason. That's uh, critical to their whole survival system. So if, if we build a world that is extremely hot and extremely humid, we can expect it to be dominated by giant reptiles. And there's a certain justice in that, actually, because you could make a case that of all the life forms that humanity has oppressed, and we've oppressed them all, uh, we've oppressed reptiles especially hard. Right? We've really had it in for reptiles. We fucked up their world beyond recognition. And so uh, there'd be some poetic justice in this. But none of this matters, of course. If humanity isn't around, there is no justice, poetic or otherwise. Justice really only exists for humans and in the minds of humans. And so this is really the point that I'm trying to make here, is that all of this is uh, strictly a human thing. The, the universe is completely indifferent to our fate. This is the essence of existentialism, after all, is perceiving this, right? That out there in the icy universe, there's nothing. It's cold. Most of it's dark and empty. You know, if you went out there, there's nothing out there that, that of any use to you. In fact, you would be killed instantly. People often talk about how we're going to escape to other planets and so on. And I just laugh because people who aren't who aren't actually involved in the business of space exploration and astronomy have very little firm grasp of how lethal space actually is. It's extremely difficult even to make computers that can survive space. You'd be surprised how many of our satellites and other machines we send into space are destroyed just by the radiation. And so, in fact, it's just ludicrous to imagine that we're going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We either make our stand and survive a bit longer here on Earth, and even that, of course, is time limited. Ultimately, the sun will become a red giant, and if we haven't managed to escape from Earth by then, we'll be fucked. But that's very far in the future. That's a billion years or more into the future. And so we could, we could last a lot longer here on Earth and, for all we know, have a, a very interesting time and do heroic, wonderful things that we can't imagine right now. Or the experiment could be over and we're gone. But either way, the universe is absolutely indifferent to it. And so it's really only of importance to us.
I think that people really misunderstood something deep about the Church of Euthanasia. What the most important thing that they understood was that Save the Planet Clear Yourself is actually, um, well, you could say it's a joke in a way. It's really more of a Zen koan. It's an absurd, nonsensical statement. And the reason it's absurd, of course, is because the planet actually isn't in any danger. We're in no danger of killing the planet. We couldn't do it if we wanted to. We could set off all of our hydrogen bombs at once and still bacteria and many insects would survive and ultimately evolve into something else. And so it's not within our range of options to kill the planet. However, it's very much within our range of options to destroy ourselves. And so what I mean to say is that the most endangered species on Earth is civilization, human civilization. This was always the point of Save the Planet, Kill Yourself. It was a way to show that our position is absurd, that we're sabotaging ourselves ultimately, and that that's only uh, of interest to us, that ultimately if we sabotage ourselves, that we have no one to blame but ourselves. That the, the very fact that humans are capable of not destroying their own future, the very fact that human beings can even, in theory at least, be made aware of the real possibility that we're going to make ourselves extinct, these unavoidably create some ethical pressure for us to not do that stupid thing. If we were completely unaware, I mean, suppose we were like bacteria, you know, and we somehow caused our own destruction. That's totally possible. In fact, that's the norm in evolution. 99% of every species that has ever evolved on Earth is now gone for one reason or another, but not, not out of willful self-destruction. Most life forms are basically like very clever, complicated behaving machines in the sense that they can do a thing. They're, they have evolved to exploit a particular degree of freedom or a particular environmental benefit, and so they do that. And eventually it can be that that environmental, environmental benefit just changes or something else comes along that can exploit it even better. And so then the original species goes extinct. But our situation is not that at all. We have completely re-engineered Earth systems to suit ourselves. Almost all of Earth's land surface that's capable of supporting life is now redirected towards either us directly or towards our uh, domesticated animals. We're behaving like a virus, right? We've infected Earth and we've completely taken it over and converted it to our own use. And so we have no excuse. If we do that and then basically destroy ourselves in the process, who are we supposed to blame except ourselves? It makes no sense. Rational, educated people no longer snicker when you discuss climate change and human extinction, right? It's all too obvious, actually, that it's become a real threat and that we're increasingly napping our way to oblivion. And so, in fact, the tactics have to change. It's too late for arch tactics. It's too late for, uh, you know, black humor and, uh, and kind of uh, irony and sarcasm. It's necessary now to tell it like it is. Apologize to the Future was my attempt to tell it like it is, plain and simple. This is what will happen. This is how we will look to future generations if they are lucky, or shall we say, unlucky enough to exist. The essence of the Apologize to the Future project is visualizing the present from the point of view of the hypothetical future in which we have made a mess of Earth completely and our descendants, our own children, I don't have any, but you may, your own descendants are sort of picking through the rubble. How will they regard us? Probably not as heroes would be my guess. Even the Unabomber pointed this out, not that I agree with him necessarily, but he, you know, he pointed out that what we're really you know, talking about here is industrialism. Humanity has had the idea that there should be no limits to growth. That's an idea. It happens to be a mistaken idea, a dangerous idea, a stupid idea. It was, I think, uh, Kurt Vonnegut who said somewhere in Breakfast of Champions, never underestimate the power of bad ideas. 
The idea that there are no limits to growth and that humanity can have everything its way, this is not tied necessarily only to capitalism or communism. This is a fundamental human misapprehension about how the universe works. We want to believe that we can have whatever we want. We don't like limits. But unfortunately for us, there are limits. The failure to respect limits typically comes from failure to be educated in science, technology, engineering, and math. And so if you, if you want to really focus on the cause, right, my view is that the real cause is that most human beings are completely failed by their society. This is pretty easy to demonstrate. So um, probably the all-time peak of education in science, well, let's just call it STEM for short, science, technology, engineering, and math, was in the post-war period after the Second World War. America led the way. Uh, its schools for, at one time were the envy of the whole world. Hard to imagine that today, but that's the truth. In the 1950s and 60s, American schools were tremendous, the public schools especially. Uh, and so um, many other countries tried to emulate the, those, uh, those actions. And, and so for a while there, it was pretty normal for the average person, a person of average means, not wealthy, but even, you know, middle class or whatever, it was pretty normal for ordinary people to be educated thoroughly in STEM. Today, that is not the case. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that very many people are essentially incapable of critical thinking. You cannot think critically without some background in STEM. It is essential. Essentially, humanity has failed in its duty to be not only literate, but numerate. And this is why I think Albert Bartlett, who's dead now, uh, was uh, quite correct when he famously said that humanity's greatest failing was its inability to comprehend the exponential function. Most people, you talk to them about exponents and their eyes just fucking glaze over. They don't understand, they don't understand logs, they don't understand inverse logs, and if you try and talk to them about it, they get upset. Well, you know, sorry, but like that's how population growth works. Population growth is an exponential function, and lots of other things are too. And so, you know, if you want to work work for a huge financial company in the stock market trading and stuff, then you have to know your logs. But lots of people don't do that. Most people's jobs don't require them to know anything, anything more than simple arithmetic, and they're lucky if they know that. And so that's just not good enough. That won't do. And so the question is, how is it that society is failing people? Well, that's you know, that's a really important question that we ought to be addressing. And my answer would be that we have to look at the critical period hypothesis. I think that Noam Chomsky and his followers in linguistics were right, that the, uh, it, but the, that they didn't take it far enough. The critical period hypothesis is fairly narrowly confined to the development of language, language. And effectively what it says is that human beings have a defined period during which they are amenable to learning language. It's an observation of neuroscience. It says that during a certain period, the human brain is being wired for language. It's a neural network and it's being wired. It's not physical wires, but it might as well be, as we now know from the successes that have been made in developing neural nets in, in software, uh, especially by uh, DeepMind and other related corporations. Essentially, it, it might as well be actual wires. So human beings are machines. Their, their brains are kind of, of biological machinery. The brain itself is an astonishing computer, vastly in excess in its capabilities of anything human beings can currently produce, but nonetheless predictable. And it's, so its wiring process is understandable and predictable. And if that process is denied, in other words, if you park children during the critical period in front of the TV or whatever, or ignore them, or God forbid, don't engage them in conversation, then what you get is fucking morons. You get super morons. You get basically people who will grow up with permanent damage. You might as well call it child abuse because that's what it is. If we lived in a more just world, the highest paid profession in the world would be teaching. The teachers that we give our children to 
are responsible for the future. They are determining the future of humanity by determining what children during the critical period will actually be exposed to. Are they going to be, you know, you send your kids to a Waldorf school, there's going to be trouble, right? They're, instead of studying STEM and instead of reading the classics and so on, they're going to be sitting around gazing at their navels and uh, playing musical instruments and so on. Well, maybe, maybe Rudolf Steiner thought that was a great idea. But Rudolf Steiner was a fucking moron. Rudolf Steiner believed that he was walking around in the spirit world and talking to the spirits. And, you know, he, 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 might, as well have been, he might as well have been Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion. He was a fucking dangerous moron with stupid, dangerous ideas. More, uh, sorry, but Steinerism is a cult, and yet, that cult exists today and is allowed to run schools for children. So you better believe that all the children who go to those schools are getting a kind of brain damage. This is what we need to start facing. I know it's not polite, but it's, I'm in good company. I'm with Richard Dawkins. I don't feel bad about insulting people's religion because religion is fucking insane. I don't have any problem saying in the public sphere that religion is a bunch of fairy tales and to the extent that humanity continues to believe those fairy tales, we're absolutely fucked and we're going to go extinct. People are jerking off at just the moment when we need to get real. You understand? That's why a thin layer of oily rock says, one of the lines is, so we better get real while we still can. It don't mean a thing, except maybe to us. That's from a thin layer of oily rock. I'm quoting. It's an existential scientific pragmatism anthem. That's what it is. And it's super important that people understand the seriousness of what's happened. We have become self-aware in an eye blink on the geological time scale. And it's been a terrible, terrifying journey, including things like, you know, mass slaughter, Auschwitz, unimaginable things, toxic pollution, the Superfund sites, nuclear war, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, just unimaginable horror. <laughs> but it's all, there's also been unimaginable beauty and greatness. And I defy anyone, anyone to deny that, you know, stand there in, in one, of the great, one of the great achievements inside one of our more beautiful cathedrals or buildings or in a museum and deny that there hasn't been good that's come from all this. It's been a very complicated, messy experiment that we're conducting with intelligence here. And it's all about to end if we don't shape up. What shaping up means is getting serious, taking responsibility for the future. That's what it is about. If we don't take responsibility for the future, we won't have one. I don't think that's hard to understand. And I think that it's shocking that most people are so reluctant to face that. I face it every day. If I blame people for anything, I blame them for not taking the future seriously enough. You know, look, if you want to recycle bottles and stuff, you go ahead, but it makes no difference. That's not going to, that's not going to impact the future. And there's a good, simple reason for that. The, the reason the Church of Euthanasia focused on procreation primarily is because procreation, here we go with the STEM stuff again, procreation has logarithmic effects, exponential effects. So you say, well, you know, I'm only going to have two. Sure, great. And then it turns out that despite all your efforts to turn your, your two offspring into progressive, liberal, open-minded, like STEM-loving, super-intelligent guys, it, oops, you fucked it up and they turn into like Mormons. And so they have huge families. And boom, before you know it, you've created this enormous pyramid of humanity moving forward into the future, long after you're dead. That consequence vastly eclipses any amount of reduction in consumption that you could have accomplished in your own personal life.
you just couldn't recycle enough bottles to even begin to offset the damage that you did by setting that chain of events into motion. That is why we focus on procreation, because procreation is not linear. Unlike consumption reduction for individuals, which is linear, you consume a certain amount, you reduce it a certain amount, that's linear. But population is nonlinear. You don't control what your children do. You think you do, you'd like to think you do, but you don't, and you certainly don't control what their children do. And so the best way that you can impact the future, right, is by not making more humans, because there just isn't any problem that humanity is currently facing that adding more humans will help us solve. We are already failing the vast majority of humans. And when I say that, I'm being specific. It's like this. So fully half of the world's population today, now, lives on less than $10 a day. Probably a solid third of humanity lives on $2 a day or less and goes to bed hungry pretty much every night. They are the abject poor, the absolute poor, living in slums, living in favelas, struggling every day just to get enough calories to survive. Their children get brain damage, you understand? From malnutrition, not just from being ignored. They'd be happy to be parked in front of a TV in some American suburb and at least getting enough to eat. Their brains would still be damaged but by neglect, but at least they wouldn't be getting malnutrition. This is how much we failed humanity, okay? We have failed on a massive, massive scale to provide for the humans we've already got. And so you explain to me how adding more is gonna help that. You can't and you won't. There is no explanation. It's just fucking crazy. And so what it really comes down to is selfishness. And I have no, no patience with that. I have no patience with people who pretend to seize the high ground and talk about how, how their children are gonna be so special and wonderful, when what they really are is selfish. They just wanna go through the process, especially if we have this all the time. People just say, yeah, Bo, but it's the most important thing you've ever done with your life, and you, you can't even really say you're an adult until you've had children, and blah, 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 blah. This is all just selfishness. It's disregard for the future and it's selfishness. And so I have no patience with it. That's why we use it as a litmus test. If you're for the Church of Euthanasia, and if you really care about the future, the first thing and the only thing we oblige you to do is to put your money with your mouth, where your mouth is, and not procreate. The rest of it is optional. Even veganism, though it's crucial and important, it's still only affecting your consumption. That's still only linear. China now has a billion and a half people. India has a billion, easy. South Asia has a lot too. They're growing and they're the main customers for fossil carbon. They're the main customers for copper and everything else that humans need. They're developing at a ferocious scale. They're buying up huge chunks of Africa to use the farmland and they're securing access to fresh water. They are gonna determine what happens in the future, not Americans and certainly not Germans. Or, it or Italians or Spanish people. In many parts of Europe, population growth is, is negative. It has been for a while. The problem that I have, right, is I'm mostly only reaching people in countries where, the pop where people have already apparently absorbed the message for one reason or another because the population growth is already falling. If this message were translated into Chinese or, or Hindi, it might do more good. 
Should we feel good about ourselves because we are, we're actually winning? We're not winning. That's the thing. We're not winning. We're still doing most of the consuming, right? China's catching up. India's catching up. And they're burning a lot of coal, and that sucks. And there's also the whole historical issue, right? The Americans like to point their fingers and say, oh, well, now it's China that's causing the problem. So stop talking about us. Well, actually, there's America and the Europe's historical emissions. Most of the existing CO2 in the atmosphere came from America and Europe and from their industrial revolution. So it's actually not correct for us to just deflect and say, oh, well, you know, uh, it's not our problem, especially because most of our shit is being made in China, right? So there's that too, right? Who's consuming all this stuff that China's making? Ah, well, it's mostly Europeans and Americans. Great. So in fact, we everybody, there's enough blame to go around. There's blame on all sides. It's a human problem. And in general, the developed countries are probably more to blame. It's hard to blame, you know, islands in the, in, in the Pacific, right? They don't really output much CO2. So it's hard to really blame them. But we can blame modern developed humans for not organizing themselves. Ultimately, what are we asking people to do? We're asking them to agree. Well, that's the one thing apparently humans are terrible at. It's, it's like, you know, it, it's like herding cats. You say everybody should agree about this and you're just guaranteeing that they won't. People can really only seem to be able to agree about things that don't matter. So, you know, everybody can agree that, that uh, Gangnam Style was a great video. Well, that doesn't help us, does it? Everybody can agree that cute cats are fun to watch on the internet. I saw some statistics showing what percentage of the internet bands, internet's bandwidth was being utilized for cute cats. It was pretty surprisingly big. I thought to myself, well, maybe the Church of Euthanasia had it all wrong. And actually what we should do is attach our message to cute cat videos. It's a serious proposal. We might get more mileage that way than by making somber you know, videos about uh, overpopulation and, and sea level rise, like the overshoot video. So, okay, the overshoot video is a case in point. I spent a lot of time and money on that. That was an expensive video to make. And if you've seen it, I think you can understand why. That was all done by hand, right? That's not like digital magic. That's guys like making little models and stuff. That took like six months to do that, and a lot of money and time and care. And so now it's at, I think, 12,000 views on YouTube. Okay, so there are sharks individual sharks with millions and millions of views on YouTube. You know, what did the shark do to justify that? You know, it's just a shark, you know, swimming around in the ocean, but it's popular as fuck, and what can you do? So clearly, the Church of Euthanasia is not winning. Our propaganda needs an overhaul. We are not winning on YouTube or anywhere else. And why is that? Well, it's because we're saying something that's not cute cats, right? We're saying something that's extremely pessimistic and negative. We're asking people to confront their, their own extinction. Who wants to do that? No one. People would rather be told that it's all gonna be good, that everything is great, that uh, you know we're going to the happy place after we die and, like, and everything happens for a reason. And like, if bad things happen to other people, that's because they deserve it. In this sense, neoliberalism really is a hard formula to compete with. But neoliberalism says, closely dovetails with, with what new age religions say. New Age religions encourage everybody to believe in karma, right? So the idea is that if bad stuff happens, it's for a reason. It's because either the other people did something bad or you did something bad to deserve it. If you get sick, it's because you deserve it. You know, if you're a good person, then God will save you. Oh, great, super. All right, so that's what people want to believe. They want to believe that there's justice and that basically, like, every, you know, everything is magical. Magical thinking. And this, of course, has it's become abundantly clear that there's good evolutionary reasons for this. It, it, it would appear, right, that in our original evolutionary uh, uh, super violent past, right, when we were surviving just barely, right, uh, by our wits and always in danger of getting our arms and legs torn off by giant mammals, right, it was a lot easier just to survive psychologically if, if your brother gets eaten by a lion and stuff to believe that he didn't actually die and he didn't die in an agonizing pain, that actually his spirit went to the happy place and so you're going to see him soon.
Well, I can understand that. I can understand that that would have been an evolutionarily selected attribute. It's just super fucking unhelpful at the moment because at the moment we're not like wandering around on the savanna. We're confronting the reality of 8 billion people trying to survive through vast technological systems which are totally under our own control. So it's not helpful to believe in magic at the moment. In fact, there's only one thing that is helpful at the moment, and that's for us for it to be super hyper fucking rational, which is the one thing that humans hate to do. You know, they hate it like the plague. I can't tell you how many friends I have. You start talking to them about rationality and about facts and stuff, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, sorry, that's also negative, you know, because, like, everything's relative. And so, I, you know, what my meditation teacher says is just as valid as that. No, it isn't. Your meditation teacher is totally full of shit. Ayurveda is full of shit. Sorry, but like traditional Chinese medicine almost killed me. Traditional Chinese medicine is little better than witchcraft. You might as well put leeches on people. The only reason the Chinese communist government agreed to it is because they have other problems. And so like if, if, if traditional Chinese medicine makes their population easier to manage, and you know, they don't care, fuck it. You know, if people want to believe that eating bear paws gives them sexual virility, it's, not, it's better that than having them believe that, that going after the Chinese communist leaders and, and, uh, and voting them out of office or whatever is going to make for a better society, right? They'd rather have, rather have bears go extinct than have that. And so that's how it works in China, right? So guys, guys basically murder all these extinct uh, or nearly extinct animals and eat their parts and stuff and, and believe in magic. Yeah, that's, what's, that's just belief in magic. That's like when guys in the old days in Aboriginal society, right, if you, 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 you eat your enemy's brain because it's going to make you as powerful as your enemy. It's actually a great way to get horrible diseases. But people didn't know that. They didn't know that diseases were real. Fuck, I don't know, I don't know how, how many times I have to tell people. It was only until the very late 19th century that people actually admitted that bacteria were real. And, they, and then guys like uh, Robert Koch were saying like, no, actually, it's these little microscopic things. Yeah, I know you can't see them. I know they're invisible. You gotta look through my microscope to see them. They're all like, no, 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 no. That's not how God's plan works. You know how many people died because of that? Because people just couldn't accept that actually, no, it's not God's plan. It's because of these little microscopic things and they're actually fucking real. Well, that's just quite fucking crazy, right? But that's how people are. They don't like reality. Reality is scary and weird. What the Hubble telescope shows us is that most of the universe is scary and weird and you wouldn't want to be anywhere fucking near it. If you got even close to a black hole, you'd be obliterated instantly. And yet that's our reality, you know, it's out there. Most of the universe is just filled with, with e either nothing, meaning like dust, barely any dust drifting through a vacuum, or it's filled with like super plasma, like exploding plasma. Plasma is like gas that's heated so much that it's just hard for human beings to comprehend how hot it is. It's like as hot as the surface of the sun. And so if you were anywhere fucking near it, you'd just turn into a cinder instantly. That's what the universe looks like. It's a super scary, crazy, hostile, enormous place. And humanity and our whole existence and our museums and our music and our culture and our books and our, our webcams and our podcasts are just occurring on this little tiny dot. That's what the thin layer of oily rock says, right? In one of the first verses, it says, in exploding chaos to a tiny dot in exploding chaos. That's what Earth is, the pale blue dot, just like Carl Sagan said. I should have said pale blue dot, but whatever, it's close enough. We're a tiny dot. And we better get some humility about that. Otherwise, it ain't going to be our dot anymore.
Post anti-humanism is the realization that it's pointless at this point to attack humanity. That misanthropy is increasingly pointless because humanity is sinking. It's like like the Titanic is sinking and everybody's in the fucking water, freezing their asses off, and you know the uh, there's not enough lifeboats and guys are definitely going to die. Well, so now what? We're going to like laugh at them and say, ah, you dumbasses, you should have listened to the captain. Ah, you know, you should. It's it's your own fault. We're going to or like. So what's the point of that, right? We're going to humiliate people and immiserate them while they're already humiliated and, and miserable. You know, it's just pointless. It's pointless cruelty. Humanity is in deep, deep shit. And so increasingly, there's just no, there's no time to waste. It's as if an asteroid were coming straight for Earth and going to kill all life on Earth. And we're all like, sort of like, yeah, yeah, but that's not really happening because I read some shit on the internet that says that that's just a hoax. And, and all, actually, I'm busy watching Netflix right now. Can we talk about this some other time? You know, it, that's like the reality is that people are absolutely clueless. It's happening in slow motion. And so it's easy to dismiss it, but it might as well be the asteroid headed straight for Earth. And so the honest president would get on the TV and he'd say, look, I know that this is a stretch. I know it's hard for you guys to grasp this, but we need to mobilize the entire world to deal with this threat. Otherwise, we're just not going to have a future on Earth. We would talk about humanity's purpose. There would be discussion by the governments of the world. Believe it or not, there is such a discussion. If you look closely, you'll find in the UN Charter, you'll find discussion of keeping humanity habitable indefinitely for the benefit of all, of all future generations. It's spelled out in uh, an annex that was added to the Rio Agreements, which uh, the Rio Agreements was from 1992, but there was an annex added just a couple of years ago. I think it was like uh, maybe like six years ago or something. I'd have to look up the exact date where they actually specifically spelled out that we that human beings have the right to a habitable earth in perpetuity or for, for as long as it's possible. So we would talk about that. The, the leaders of the world would get up on TV and they talk about that. And they say, look, this is this sorry about all that crazy stuff we said before, but now we're gonna get real because otherwise we're all gonna be dead. See any signs of that? If we see some signs of that, wake me up. It's like this, you, you know what the Keeling curve is, right? The Keeling curve, it's yeah, yeah, the measurement of CO2, right? So it's been going on since the 50s or whatever. So that that measurement, wake me up when that measurement even plateaus. Last year, it was bigger than ever, right? The jump was bigger than ever any year before. As long as that keeps going up, we're fucked. We're headed straight for catastrophe. We're speeding up. And it's not because we all, it's not because everybody wakes up in the morning and thinks, I want to exterminate humanity. It's not like that. It's because people just, most of them just don't know any better. Remember, half the world, right, is, is on $10 a day or less, right? They don't have any time for this. They're not going to hear your podcast. They're like, you know, they're they're struggling just to stay alive. And then, you know, there's the subset of them that are basically not doing too well at that, right? And they're basically have malnutrition. And so, you know, what whatever they think, they're they're certainly not focused on the long-term future of humanity. And so this whole conversation we're having is really only for the intelligentsia in the developed countries. In other words, basically what's left of the middle class. And I don't, you know, I don't know if super rich people listen to your podcast. Probably not. I think they probably have their own podcast. Who knows what they say? Whatever Elon Musk wants them to hear, right? But so, you know, whatever's left of the middle class, sort of ordinary people who got some decent education and are paying off their student loans, those are the guys who are listening to your podcast. Well, what, what are they supposed to do about all this? Well, like we said, you, they could start by taking it seriously. And taking it seriously would mean, like, at least not contributing to the problem by adding more people. That's what it says right there in Apologize to the Future. How dare you breed? It's nothing but greed. No doubt your kids will thank you well for turning Earth into a living hell. Not what you expected to hear, is it?
I'd like it to be a more cheerful message, but I don't see how it can be. Objecthood. I wanted to play Jessica's NATO anthem once again before wrapping this up, and also leave you with yet another one of these metaphorical tunnels that somehow bridges what both our guests were talking about here. It's from 1991, so a year before the Church of Euthanasia was founded. It says, quote, We need a scientific culture that can learn from differences of class, gender, race and biology, and that can transform notions like progress and objectivity in order to address these differences and the social inequalities created in their name. That kind of culture will have to be actively constructed from embodied scientific knowledge about the environments we inhabit, rather than from the kind of knowledge traditionally espoused by science that empirically separates the environments from our lived experience of them. This is from a book by Andrew Ross called Strange Weather, Culture, Science and Technology in the Age of Limits. Now, enjoy the rest of the anthem. Thank you, Jessica, Andrea, Chris, and of course you for making it this far. <laughs>